0: Three CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. Three CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty.
1: Radio, radio this
2: is three CR Breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis,
0: and current affairs. Hands. Monday to Friday, seven a.m. to late 30 a.m..
1: double: your)
0: Good morning, listeners. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, uh, 8.55am on your radio, or you might be streaming at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. This is Priya, and I've got Leela in the studio with me. Good morning, everyone. How's it going? Oh, Priya, I can tell you, after a week of, well, almost a
3: week of manual labor, I've never appreciated sitting in a chair more than I do right
0: now. It is... One of those things that as a, as a habitual chair sitter for work, I really feel like I take for granted. So I'm glad that you're getting a bit of a seat now. Um, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be a big show today. And before we jump into that rundown, I'm going to get um, our lovely Inez on the phone. So we might go to a little CSA that is a teaser for one of our interviews today.
4: Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown.
5: When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street.
4: Tune in to Homeless in Hotels.
5: A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels.
4: And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19.
5: Premiering on Thursday, July 28th 12pm to 1pm
4: On 3CR 855am Homeless in Hotels A 3CR 3CR supporter. Supporter
0: We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM, and we might jump into our show rundown for today. So do you want to kick us off, Leela?
3: Yeah. So first up, we'll hear a short clip of speeches from the Nam Nadok March this past Friday, the 8th of July, featuring Yorta Yorta, Wemba Wemba, Gundachmara Man, Yemuraki Egan, and Yorta Yorta, Wiradjuri Trawalla Way woman Naomi Kem- Kennedy Bamblet. Thanks yeah. to IN from Diaspora Blues.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Ian played this on mm. um, on their latest episode of Diaspora Blues. So thanks so much for the recordings, and you can catch that uh, Mondays at two thirty on three CR. Um, and after that, I'm super excited about this. It's been buzzing for days. Um, we're going to be joined by Stephanie Bernard, a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, researching the most distant galaxies with space telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope. And Stephanie is joining us today to discuss the recent release of images taken by NASA's James Webb Space Telescope and to talk about the telescope's potential to deepen our understanding of the universe. Stephanie is also an astronomy and science educator at ScienceWorks and the Melbourne Planetarium. And also at the Victorian Space Science Education Centre. And big shout out to my mate Henry, uh, who's an astrophysicist who gave me the hook up to do this very exciting interview.
3: And after that, we uh, Stephanie Burn oh sorry, <laughs> my brain has just not woken up. <laughs> um, Kelly Whitworth and Spike Chipolone speak to us about the upcoming launch of Homeless in Hotels, a three part. Radio Series Documenting Life in Hotels During the COVID-19 Pandemic, which premieres on 3CR on Thursday, the 28th of July at 12pm. Kelly produces Radical Australia here on 3CR and is passionate about peer-produced media. Spike is a peer support worker at a Melbourne Homeless Health Centre with a lived experience of homelessness and drug use. Together, they co-hosted the former 3CR peer homelessness show – Ruminations and co-founded the Homeless Persons Union
0: Victoria. Excellent. And Inez?
6: Yes, and then we'll be joined by Ella Shi from the Migrant Workers Centre. Ella is a digital and community organiser at the Migrant Workers Centre. She's previously worked as a community organiser student union representative and is also a former ASU workplace delegate. She joined us today to speak about importance of the migrant workers twenty twenty two survey and how this impacts their work and policy recommendations.
0: Excellent. Um, and that survey is open at the moment, so we'll have links in our um, in our show notes. ...so that you can take that if it is ap- applicable to you. And finally, we're going to be joined by Reniga Inpakumar from the Tamil Refugee Council... ...who's a young Elam Tamil activist and law arts student with a long history of organizing to amplify Elam Tamil issues... And she joins us today to provide an analysis of the economic crisis and mass protests in Sri Lanka from an Elam Tamil perspective, highlighting some important concerns that have often gone neglected in mainstream media coverage. And this is, you know, around the issue of um genocide of Tamil people and the refugee crisis that has emerged from this long-standing conflict. And so I'm really interested to hear that take because there has been a lot of discussion about uh, about these uprisings, which are a majority Sinhalese Buddhist uprising being a people's protest. But, of course, it's important to get this analysis from all angles. So, Inez, now that you're on the phone, how's it going today?
6: Uh, yes, uh, I have been quite sick. <laughs>
0: you poor thing. I-
6: I know. I feel. I feel okay today, but I set twelve alarms and I slept through them, which is also not unusual for me. <laughs> but I think um, today I definitely was feeling it. And Priya being um, the 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 voice of reason <laughs> told me to stay at home, so I'm listening. I'm listening to them.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, it's it's very generous of you to refer to me as that. I mean, I'm thinking. <laughs> I think this is a good way to also just tie it back into you know public health stuff around you know the BA.5 Omicron variant, where you just had a flu. But um, keeping yep. an eye on how we're how we're all feeling. You know, not getting too lax about protection measures and making sure that we rest um, and and try our very best to give ourselves the space to recover from you know, whether it is the flu or whether it is um, COVID, because as we've seen, there's been a lot of reluctance from government to to put in place, um, you know, any serious mask mandates and anything like that. It, it's all still voluntary, and I guess we should volunteer to uh, keep protecting each other.
6: Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. Well, thank you, Inez. We might jump into some news headlines shortly after we head to this CSA.
6: Wa carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Teldom Chogo Edwards, for Ballamoir, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from two PM to three PM every Thursday afternoon on 3CR eight fifty
7: five on your radio dial.
1: As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight, I can hear the voices of my elders. Their ancient sounds echo in my mind
0: to the beat of clapstick and the dancing. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 14th of July.
3: More than 700 COVID-19 outbreaks have been reported in aged care facilities with cases expected to rise. Amongst increasing COVID-related hospitalizations and deaths, aged care providers are very concerned about continued community transmission of Omicron BA-5 and BA-4, and expect to see an increasing impact on aged care in in the coming weeks. This comes as medical experts urge the government to extend the free rapid antigen test program for concession card holders, which is due to wrap up at the end of July. Experts say that ending the support for better access to the tests for low-income earners sends the wrong message, and that vulnerable people will be most
0: at risk. In other news, two Martitsanara women have presented to the UN's expert mechanism on the rights of indigenous peoples last week in an ongoing attempt to stop the Scarborough Gas Project's destruction of a sacred 70,000-year-old rock art in Murujuga, also known as Borough Peninsula. Raylene Cooper and Josie Alex spoke of the cultural genocide at the hands of the state government project, highlighting the absence of women in the heritage survey process and raising concerns about the survival of women's sites in Murujuga. Miss Cooper and Miss Alex called uh, Miss Alec called on the United Nations to hold governments of Australia and corporations to account and to move forward on the world heritage listing of the sacred site.
3: Also in headlines this week, retailers Bunnings and Kmart are being investigated over their use of facial recognition technology in stores without knowledge and consent from customers. Bunnings said it uses the technology to identify persons of concern in its stores and that customers are warned through signage at store entrances. But the Office of Australian Information Commissioner has launched an investigation into the retailers. After consumer group Choice raised concerns, saying the use of facial recognition by the retailers is
0: completely inappropriate and invasive. And finally, in headlines for today, a report released this week shows that half of managers in Australia have never hired a person with disability, and nearly one in ten admit that they are not open to recruiting a person with disability in the future. The Disability Royal Commission last year heard that employment rates of people with disability have remained stagnant in Australia for decades and are well below the average of other countries. Advocates also point to high dissatisfaction rates with the government's Disability Employment Services Program, which pays private providers to place job seekers into work, and with the Australian Disability Enterprises, which employs people with disability at below award rates. According to the Australian Council of Social Services, people with disability are also much more likely to live in poverty, in large part due to sub-poverty line welfare benefits. So these have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 14th of July. And you're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. and I just wanted to add something to those headlines. Um, and this is, I guess, kind of linking into that last point about uh, people with disability being more likely to live in poverty, there's also, you know, these ongoing concerns that have been raised um, about the inquiry into the disability support pension and the barriers to accessing that pension such that a lot of people with disability are trapped on the job seeker payment, um, not being able to afford the uh, constant assessments and um, all these requirements to actually meet the threshold for access, even if they are disabled. Um, and it also links into these uh, these concerns about the rollback of the rapid antigen test program for concession card holders, where the Anti-Poverty Center has raised some serious concerns about the fact that, you know, people that are on poverty or below poverty um, line payments are often people that need to be out and about more just by virtue of, not having enough money to do a big grocery shop, for example, once every two weeks, having to be uh, more in contact, have more face-to-face exposure, and therefore being at higher risk of Omicron. And so there have been some really serious concerns about how uh, the rollback of this program and also the maintenance of of below-poverty line payments are going to, result in a further compounding of the public health crisis um, associated with COVID-19. Um, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, I guess, yeah, from lived experience,
3: like I can barely afford my meds when I'm relying just on my job seeker payment. And I was really upset to see that they were ending those free tests because it felt like, yeah, an accessible way that I could protect myself and the people I care about. So, yeah. yeah, very disappointing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not too late to change this decision, and hopefully the government will listen to people's concerns. Um, but, yeah, again, just the sort of, um, you know, one, one part of an in- incredibly important range of measures that need to be taken uh, to really invest in, you know, public health and community well-being and something that government does have the money for. So I might leave my comments at that. And we're back on 3CR, 855 AM on the Thursday morning breakfast show. And we're about to hear a short clip of some speeches from the NARM-NADOC march this past Friday, the 8th of July, featuring Yorta Yorta, Wamba Wamba, and Gunichamara man, Yamaraki Egan, and Yorta Yorta, Wiradjuri, and Tuarulwe woman, Naomi Kennedy Bamblet And our thanks to Ayan from Diaspora Blues on 3CR for sharing these recordings with us.
9: My name is America Egan, I'm a proud Yorta Yorta Whamba Whamba Good and tomorrow, man. What I must say is so deadly to see such a diverse, a big crowd here today. We didn't let the rain stop us from turning out. Getting up, standing up and showing up to support our mob. We're still going through a few things as people. And I know it's important that we celebrate our people and our culture. It's important that we still acknowledge some of the difficulties that we're going through today as Indigenous people. Whether it's deaths in custody or incarceration rates, we must stand together and stick together as one, indigenous and non-indigenous people, so we get through these things together. It's been so deadly being Mr. Nadoff this week, and although it's been long I couldn't have done it and got through this week without the support from you fellas, all the mob and all my family that's given me the support throughout the week. So I want to say, say thank you to everyone that's given me and shown me support throughout the week. Finally, I just want to reiterate this year's theme, get up, stand up, show up. That goes for everyone, not just Indigenous people. And it goes throughout all time, not just throughout NAIDOC week. I hope everyone enjoys their week. Happy
2: NAIDOC! My name is Naomi kennedy Bamblett. I'm a very proud Yorta Yorta, Wiradjuri and Trollway woman. I was born and raised here in Melbourne or Wiradjuri country Um, and it's my honour to be Miss NAIDOC for this year. Uh, NAIDOC this year is especially important, especially for us down here in Victoria and Melbourne. We know what we've experienced these last few years with the pandemic and how hard it's been and how much we've just wanted connection and to be connected with each other. So this year, coming back and being able to celebrate all that we do, all the getting up, standing up, showing up that we do every day of the year as community members, we finally get to celebrate all of that together here. Whether it's here at the march, at the ball together, at the various local community events, not just in Melbourne, but in all the small country towns in Victoria as well. You know, Mildura, Haywood, Shepparton, out in Gippsland. Strong communities all around Victoria, it's not just here in Melbourne. Now this theme, this year, like Yemma said, get up, stand up, show up. We've been doing this, that's how NADOC was born. NADOC was born from our protest, from our activism, from us getting up, standing up, showing up for ourselves. Because the wider community wasn't doing that for us. So now we're at a time where we're able to come together. non indigenous people are listening to us in a real way. And so we're all able to come together and yarn about the issues that we've been screaming into megaphones for decades about. So that's what's so special about today. It's so special to see out in the crowd a lot of familiar faces that I know from community and faces that I don't know and that we'll all get to know. Because this is our country together and we're not going to make any progression unless we have you fellas standing beside us and behind us as we lead the way with self-determination for our communities. So deadly to see you all here today, and for the mob, look after yourself, take time after this march, after you've screamed, take time to take care of yourself, sit down with your family, and then get ready for tomorrow night when we all party out together. But for today, but for today, be strong, be proud, all these young ones here, some of them, this is their first march, they haven't experienced this because of COVID or what have you, so let's all be proud and deadly, and happy up week.
3: And we just heard a short clip of speeches from the Nam Nadoc March this past Friday, featuring Yorta Wa- Wemba Wemba and Gunditjmara man, Yamaraki Egan, and Yorta Yorta, Wiradjuri and Teruwe woman, Naomi Kennedy-Bamblett. Big thanks to Ayan from Diaspora Blues, and you can tune in to Diaspora Blues on Mondays at
0: 2.30pm on 3CR. Excellent. And we're going to go into a track now, and this is a new one from Thelma Plum, who has just announced another tour. So this is very exciting. Um, I believe her new album is called Mingen, uh, but this is When It Rains, It Pours by Thelma Plum. And that was When It Rains, It Pours by Thelma Plum. What a beautiful track. And that's from Thelma's latest single, which came out on the 13th of July. Um, and I believe she's got a tour coming up. So head to all of her socials to find out more information about where you can see her live. Um, go buy her music. She is fantastic and I think that was a beautiful way to open this, especially since we've had a bit of a rainy week here in Narm. So you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR,
1: 855 AM.
5: Every Wednesday at 11 AM, join me, Bunjolini, at the fire.
7: Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed
5: critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty, and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire,
7: 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio. 3CR.
9: Boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moravin. Fascism's on the march, and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Alteroa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4 30 pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. No, no, no,
1: no, 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 no.
0: We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM, and we are now joined by Stephanie Bernard, who's a Ph.D. student at the University of Melbourne, researching the most distant galaxies with space telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope. And Stephanie joins us today to discuss the recent release of images taken by NASA's James Webb Space Telescope and to talk about the telescope's potential to deepen our understanding of the universe. I've been so excited about this interview. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. How are you?
10: I'm great. Thank you so much.
0: Um, it is excellent to have you on. Um, so to just lead us into it. The James Webb Space Telescope, or Webb, launched on the 25th of December 2021 and is currently the largest space telescope in orbit. It's currently orbiting the sun 1.6 million kilometers from Earth and has just released a stunning tranche of images of the universe in detail previously unseen. So could you begin by giving us a bit of a background into the Webb Telescope itself and its capacity relative to other prominent terrestrial and space telescopes, such as its predecessors, the Hubble and Spitzer. What makes it so powerful and so unique?
10: Yeah, definitely. So it's really been a long road to these images. The Webb Telescope was first proposed in 1996, um, and so it's been in development basically for 25 years almost. Um, so the Webb. Telescope is a collaboration between NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, and the European Space Agency. So between those three, they built the telescope and all of the different cameras and things that go on it. And then, of course, the launch. So it was finished construction in 2016. So really, the astronomy community has been waiting for it to launch since then. So five years from 2016 mm-hmm. to 2021. Um so the first launch was planned in 2018, but a practice test didn't really go successfully because James Webb is so complicated. It's got so many different parts to it. It's got its mirror segments because a six-meter mirror, which is what James Webb has, is too big really to fit into a rocket. You want things in rockets to be small and compact so you save space. So it had to be f- basically folded up into really complicated sort of origami, and so that gives it lots and lots of failure points. So honestly, I think these images, we've just been holding our breath really since the launch that it all worked well, and like these images are just more amazing than anyone ever thought, I think. So once it launched, it's been about a month traveling to its orbit. So as you said, it's 1.6 million kilometers away from us. So Hubble was only about 600 kilometers above the Earth. It's in low Earth orbit. So this is a really, really far away and so while it was doing that it had some time to start to align all these different bits and unfurl um, and then it also took a long time to cool down because it's an infrared telescope and infrared telescopes need to be really really cold to operate Um because when you have heat in your electronics that actually comes out as infrared light mm. um, and so you want them to be really really cold so fortunately space is really really cold mm. and so that lets let's get get to that sort of um, temperature. So uh, once it was all ready to take images, um, it started taking images that have been released this week. These are part of the early release science program. So they were actually chosen in 2017 these different, six different images that we've seen as well as some others um, to really test out all of the different cameras and instruments on web. Um, so we've been waiting a long time for these images to be taken really. And so in terms of what is special about web compared to its predecessors. So Hubble was launched in 1990. It's a two-meter mirror, so it's much smaller compared to Webb's six meters. But two meters is still really amazing because when you're up in space, you can get much better resolution than you can on the Earth because on the Earth, we have the atmosphere blurring all of our images and being a huge pain, really. So so Hubble can take really amazingly high-resolution images, but infrared capabilities are much more limited compared to what web can now do. So when we want to look at things like these most distant galaxies or exoplanets or uh, smaller stars, um, gas and things, they all are really interesting in the infrared and Hubble just didn't have the capability to look at them the way that Web now does mm. because it's just got so much more um, capability in the, the mid and the near infrared. Um, and these are the redder wavelengths of light than, than what we can see with our mm. own eyes. It's r- lower energy, basically.
1: Yeah. So the
10: telescope was an infrared telescope. It was launched in 2003. But I think that's it, so We, we call it sort of, um, a bit of a, uh, a rubbish bin. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, it was closer to a meter in size. Um, and so much smaller even than, than Hubble. And if you have a smaller telescope, then you get worse resolution. Mm-hmm. So, James Webb being a six-meter telescope at those same wavelengths gives us a much better view of a lot of things that Spitzer could look at, but um, I have a program on Spitzer looking at these distant galaxies, and while we tried to get really as much out of it as we could, its resolution was just too limited to get a view of these really, really tiny distant galaxies. So Webb now can do it, and it's just
0: amazing i think yeah no it's so exciting um i yes. think like even for, for people, for lay people like myself, yeah. I was looking at these images and um, yeah. and I've also seen a lot of astronomy memes being like friendship yeah. ended with Hubble, my new best yeah. friend is the <laughs> <Yeah>. James <laughs> Webb Space Telescope. Um, yeah. But I was wondering, maybe uh, the image that most people will have seen is yeah. a deep yeah. field image of the yeah. SMACS 0723 galaxy cluster. Yep. So can you tell us a bit more about what the image shows us and what a deep field is in astronomy?
10: Definitely, yeah. So the image of the the SNAX 0723 cluster, which was released on Monday here for us, uh, (laughs) yes, that's so confusing. So what we're seeing is that galaxy cluster. So these are the most massive objects in the universe. So they're galaxies like our own Milky Way, but dozens or hundreds of them all held together in the same gravitational, if you can think of it as a sort of bubble. So there's a huge, more than our own sun, um, all in this sort of same sort of area. And because they're so massive, they actually make the space around them sort of walk. And so, if there's something behind this galaxy cluster, that light from that galaxy has to travel through the cluster and it gets really bent around. Just like if you had, the way I was thinking of it yesterday was if you have like a whole bunch of glasses and bowls and glass bowls and things, and you put them all in a big pile, and then you shine some light through it. That light, when you see it through, is going to be all sort of weird and, mm. and distorted. Um, so this is like, like a really complicated lens, basically. So any background galaxies, they get stretched out, which are those arcs that you can see in the image. And so you also get uh, magnified images, so they're a bit brighter than you would see them if there was a galaxy cluster in the way, and that's because some of the light that might have missed us, it gets bent by the glass to come back to our telescope. And so this magnification is actually really useful for us when we're thinking about distant galaxies because it allows us to see fainter galaxies in an image than we would be able to see, or we would have to spend a lot more time with the telescope observing to get to those fainter galaxies.
1: Mm. So
10: this is also an amazing image to study the cluster itself because with James Webb we can see a lot more of these fainter galaxies in the cluster and we know that faint galaxies are actually the most numerous ones in the universe. So really with telescopes it's easy to get the bright things, it's hard to get the faint things and James Webb lets us get these faint things really well and gives us a much better view of what's actually happening in the universe than than what we could do before. Mm. We can also see something called the Intracluster light in the image that was released, which is light that is spread throughout the gaps between these galaxies in the cluster, Um, and something that's really interesting because, again, it's really, really faint and it's hard to see, so people are very excited that maybe we can look at this in a bit more detail using these James Webb observations. So not only does this image give us a view of everything behind the cluster in really good detail, we can also just... Study how galaxies in clusters um, evolve and things using this image, which I think is really amazing. So a deep field is basically a really long exposure. So just like when you take a camera um, here on Earth and you try and take a photo of, say, um, cars at night or something and you take a long exposure, you get a very bright background coming through that. Mm-hmm. So when we take a long exposure with a telescope, we start to see fainter and fainter things. And so the history of them is basically they started with Hubble. So in 1996, the first deep-field image was taken, and it was basically the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute at the time decided that he wanted to look at the most boring patch of sky he could find. So mm-hmm. something with no stars, something with no visible galaxies. And everyone, well not everyone, but many people, this is was a waste of time, there's nothing there, why are you wasting a good amount of Hubble time on this but actually when the image came back we found that there were just thousands of galaxies in this patch of sky that no one thought there was anything in and this really opened up our view of how full the universe is of galaxies. So since then we've been taking longer and longer exposures basically <laughs> um, mm. to try and get to these really faint things and to study these most distant galaxies like I do you need these really, really long exposures, these deep fields. It's yeah. sort of like if you have if you have a candle in front of your face, you can see the light from it, you can feel the heat. But if that candle is a kilometre away, you're going to be lucky to see it at all mm-hmm. if you can. You're definitely not going to feel the heat. So to look at things that are further and further away from us, we just need to look for a longer time for that yeah. light to be able to build up and reach us. So, yeah, they're a really, really important field, but, of course, they're very time-consuming to make. So something like the James so a bigger mirror, it can take these deep fields in much less time. So really, in the next few weeks, I would expect more of these deep fields to be announced. Um, and probably with... So this is a 12.5-hour-long image. I think even in the next few weeks, we're going to start seeing images that are longer than that being released um, until we get to the sort of... James Webb Ultra Deep Field. I don't know when that would be released, but I expect that it's in the works.
0: <laughs> that sounds extremely exciting. My yeah. my understanding of this is, you know, I guess, yeah, longer exposure time and maybe a widened aperture, kind of. If you're thinking yeah. about it, a camera yeah. um, to let more light in and view these yeah. uh, these galaxies. Now we're coming rapidly close to time, which I'm very sad about. No, no, you're all right. Um, But I wanted to ask, um, before we start wrapping up, you've got some expertise in high redshift galaxies, which are, as you've mentioned, extremely distant and require infrared visualization. Yes. And you've talked a bit about how web changes our ability to view these galaxies, but I'm wondering what do you hope to understand about them with this new capacity?
10: Yeah, definitely. So because the universe is expanding, the light from these galaxies is stretched basically into red wavelengths. So that's why we need this infrared capability, which Webb has to look at these. So before with Hubble, we could just about see ultraviolet light from these galaxies. But because Webb has so much more infrared capability, we can now start to actually look into what the optical light from these galaxies is. So this is the sort of light that, if we can see the Milky Way at night, if you're in a dark sort of sky, that 's the light that we 're looking for that light from all of the stars in the galaxies, because when we look at the ultraviolet we 're only seeing again these really really bright hot young stars, and that gives us a bit of a skewed view of the galaxies so now now we can see the stars from the galaxies in a bit a lot more detail we can see basically more of the average, I would say, in the galaxy but then also James Webb can take spectra. So spectra is where you take all of that light from a galaxy and you split it up into the individual wavelengths and that allows you to get an idea of what sort of elements or what sort of isotopes what sorts of ions, all these charged particles from different physical processes going on inside the galaxy and we couldn't do this before, it was almost impossible there are a few examples where we could get a very faint trace of hydrogen in these galaxies, and hydrogen is the most common thing in the universe, but now we can get, in a six-hour image, we have a spectrum of a galaxy 13 billion years away from us. So, And that's amazing. Like, looking Mm. at this spectrum, we can see at least four different elements. We can see the proportions of these elements in this galaxy. This is just, my mind was blown, really, because this is what we have been working towards basically in the the early universe community is getting to the point where we can start to look at what sorts of elements are in there and this lets us know what sorts of stars are in these galaxies, how fast are they making stars, and then we can match this up with our cosmological model, so how do we think the universe actually formed and see if our understanding of galaxies, how they should be forming. Now, it doesn't match up with what we're actually seeing with web, which is just amazing and really something that will take this field into the future for, I think, the next 10, 15 years. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it, it is just really exciting to, to see that now there's the possibility to actually test a lot of the hypotheses exactly, that I'm sure, yeah, that, yeah people have been um, coming up with to to think about, yes. you know, what the composition of these galaxies might be, um, yes. and yeah, around age, distance, and and rate of movement. This yes. is extremely exciting. Absolutely. Um, so, look, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for explaining this in such an accessible way. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering where listeners can find out more accessible information about the James Webb Web Space Telescope and more about the work that you do.
10: Yeah, definitely. So NASA have a website all about JWST at webtelescope.org. So this has a lot of information about these first images, but also about the mission in general. Um, we also I also co-host a podcast called uh, which is on iTunes and most other podcast places and so later this week we'll have an episode released about James Webb with um, a scientist in Canada who is working on these early galaxies and also black holes in the early universe um, and all about how it's working from the inside um, and so I'm really excited about about that conversation and getting that out to everyone. So
0: awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well we'll pop a link into spaghettification as well and um yeah, you'll be able to find that info in our show notes. But Stephanie, yep. thank you so much for taking the time thank to join you us so today.
11: Oh uh, I had a great time. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Have a fantastic day.
11: You too, thank you.
0: And that was Stephanie Bernard, who's a Ph.D. student at the University of Melbourne researching the most distant galaxies with space telescopes like Hubble. But she joined us today to discuss the recent release of images taken by NASA's James Webb Space Telescope and to talk about the telescope's potential to deepen our understanding of the universe. Stephanie's also an astronomy and science educator at ScienceWorks, the Melbourne Planetarium and the Victorian Space Science Education Center. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855
2: a.m. Accent to women It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu That it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives
1: Accent to women What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How the can country? people live ordinary
6: lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where, they are too, where there are armies there and terrorists there Such conflict every single day of their lives
3: Accent to women A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio
0: 3CR. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're now joined by Kelly Whitworth and Spike Chipolone, who speak with us about the upcoming launch of Homeless in Hotels, which is a three-part radio series documenting life in hotels during the COVID-19 pandemic and which is going to premiere on 3CR on Thursday, the 28th of July at 12 p.m. Kelly and Spike, thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Oh, we can't actually hear you in here, Priya. One moment, allow me to troubleshoot. Sometimes these things happen and we are back. Can you hear me now? Yes. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Our pleasure. Um, mm-hmm. Very exciting to have you on uh, to speak about the upcoming series, Homeless in Hotels. But for audience, uh, audience members who didn't get the chance to tune into Ruminations while it was still on the air on 3CR... Um, could you maybe start off by telling us a bit about your own journeys as broadcasters, as well as your work with the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria, Spike? Do you want to go first?
5: Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the HPU um, sort of came out. So I, I after I, I was housed in twenty, like twenty o four, yeah, and um, I did some peer training with the council to homeless persons and after a couple of years of doing that um it really became clear to me that there wasn't um a space where people that are having a lived experience of homelessness like a forum where their their issues um their concerns um were were being discussed basically Mm -hmm. and um i yeah, we thought um that it would be a good idea to try, you know, like, you know, people in trades have unions, you know, like there's all sorts of different, um, organizations where there's solidarity and community and support where people can have their voices and concerns heard and, and to m- raise awareness about the issues that they face. So we thought, why not a homeless person's union? And, um, so we got some support from, some important people at the time, mm. um, yeah uh, and yeah we, it was difficult because you know it's a spa- in a space where there should be a lot of a lot of noise and a lot of um, discussion and basically a lot of conflict i'd like to, you know like mm. where where um, there wasn't there should be a really an area where there's a lot of discussion about what was going on, you know how services work, yeah. the lack of housing, the lack of support and there wasn't, um, and so we thought it was a good idea that we brought people's attention to to these issues through the development of a union and um, supporting the rights of people that are having a lived experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, and yeah. Kelly, did you want to add to that?
4: I just, um, we started at 3CR um, um, in close time to each other. It was probably around 2013. We did our first training. And, uh, yeah, joined the Ruminations um, program, which was a peer um, homelessness program. And we were busy with that till about, I don't know, about 2017, I think it was. Uh, We had uh, guests with lived experience come in. We'd talk about all the um, you know, thorny political issues around homelessness. We did a lot of um, going out into the community with our portable recorders and recording events and voices of people on the street mm-hmm. and working in the area. And, um, yeah, that was a great program. Since then, I've moved on to um, do training here at 3CR, so training new broadcasters in how to produce radio. And, um, yeah, that's something I really enjoy. And I'm just currently um, producing um, the Radical Australia program here at the station, which um, airs on uh, Wednesday afternoons.
0: Excellent. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously you've had this experience broadcasting um, and you've come up with this new show, Together Homeless in Hotels, which is a three-part series that you've been working on, launching on the 28th of July on 3CR. So what were some of your primary concerns when you were bringing the voices of peers to air to speak about homelessness under lockdown during the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, again, Spike, do you want to speak to this first?
5: Uh, yeah. Um, so for me... Um like just what, you know, the media had represent. you know, there was plumbers talking about their experience of how COVID was difficult for them, you know, teachers and m- parents, um, you know, all sorts of people were getting, um, uh, airtime on the, in the mainstream media about what it was like for them during a really tough time. And we thought, well, where are the voices of the people having the toughest time? Mm. You know, like if you thought it was hard, um, from your lounge room, imagine what it was like from the footpath, mm-hmm. and having no say. You know, being you know like people were encouraged into ho- you know emergency accommodation, into an improvised. Um, it wasn't housing; it was a management of, of the homelessness. The housing, well, sorry, the home. Yeah, the homelessness. The homeless community was being managed. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was important. I thought it was really important, or we thought, sorry, we thought it was really important that people understood what it was like for people um, who were having that that sort of experience and, you know, and and not just the housing thing. It was like people who are um, having a lived experience of homelessness also have you know, they have AOD issues just like everyone else. They have mental health issues just like everyone else. You know, they have concerns about their future just like every, everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, I think it was really important to humanise and to flesh out, you know, so what what what's it like? You know, we're living in a, uh, a situation that's in lockdown, in a, a curfew, and there's prohibition. You know, and there's yeah. already a big stigma, and, and plus the stigma around mental health issues as it is. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a really tough situation to be in when you're living on a benefit that's just been increased, okay? From you know, like surprisingly increased. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, we thought it was we thought it was really important that 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 was addressed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it seems like you know a lot of the discussion that was happening at the time was about moving homeless people around and like placing them rather than actually talking to people and getting their voices amplified. Yeah. yeah, Kelly, did you want to speak to that and also maybe some of the processes of production?
4: Um yeah, just in a a with spike about why we thought it was important to um produce the series and the process. Well, we actually won a grant in um February last year from the Regina Brindle Foundation and that's a foundation that's been established for two to three years now, and their mission is to um, um, support um, AOD, that's alcohol and other drug, and mental health um, consumers or peers to um, create projects in um, in the community to elevate the voices and concerns and experiences of that group of people. And so we were really stoked. Yeah, we won a um, a $4,000 grant we applied for. We won it last February, and that really helped us um, with the production costs of things. And, um, yeah, so it's been a, like an 18-month project. We're really mm-hmm. excited to be finally getting it out into the world. And um, we used a lot of our networks to connect with our peers through trusted networks. And, um, yeah, we um, conducted interviews here at um, 3CR and also on uh, Zoom. And, um, yeah, then the whole process of... You know, that whole research process of looking for themes, you know, throughout your research. How are we going to tell this story based on what people have told us? And, uh, you know, that's months and months of work of transcribing Um, And you've also got uh, your own personal issues going on in your life with housing and maybe you've got your own um, AOD and mental health struggles. Um, That definitely happened. Mm, (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's been a long process and now we're fully into the promotion stage and we can't wait to get it out there for everyone to hear these stories. And then, you know, people are going to really fall in love (laughs) with our peers. They're just uh, beautiful people and their stories will, um, you know, really warm your heart.
5: Can I I also just say, like, the peer, you know, it's produced by, you know, like, the peer thing's really important, and the questions were open questions, so you really get a flavour for the character of the people that were involved. They're really telling us their story about what it was like for them, and how they felt to be managed, I guess. And what it meant, you know, like for a lot of those guys, they didn't know how long the housing was going to be, um, sorry, the accommodation was going to last. A lot of people had bags packed, you know, like literally at the door mm-hmm. because they, you know, they didn't know when the lockdown was going to end. Cause just, just a reminder for, for, for people that these, you know, this, this accommodation all rested on the lockdown continuing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like it was an incredibly stressful situation. Like I did some outreach to the hotels. Um, where people were staying, and there were, you know, like, you know, there were people living with cancer. Um, with, there was also, you know, look, just the things that people were, ha- the experiences that people were having in suburbia, in their homes. This is what was happen- ha- happening, to folks in in the hotel situation, and it's not a home. Mm-hmm. It's a, re- it really is not even, a, you know, I guess, a medium term stopgap sort of um, solution, when there's not a, you know, a human rights based housing policy
0: yeah absolutely i mean like p- people are um basically at the whims of government um whether there is an interest in in continuing to fund things but at the end of the day this doesn't constitute um, a comprehensive policy or investment in in housing so um as we head towards Wrapping up, what are some actions that governments and community sector really need to take to address some of the most pressing concerns of homeless people, especially as we move into this new stage of the pandemic where there have been a rollback of, you know, things like the increased payment um, that, you know, happened last year. There was a rollback of that. And we're still, you know, going through this pandemic and people are still experiencing these acute crisis situations um, where their needs aren't being met.
4: As far as the community,
0: just quickly, um, you know, what the community, community can do, and we
4: hope this series really um, does that, is um, just understand that um, people that are homeless, like there's all different types of reasons why people are homeless. Mm. You know, you could be a woman in her 50s who's had a relationship breakdown. You've had to, you know, rely on your superannuation to survive and, you know, that doesn't go go far. Or you could be a young person who's come from, you know, some maybe family trauma or whatever it might be. Um, you know, people fall into um, self-medication and um, thing, things like that. There's so many different reasons why, uh, people are homeless, and um, you know the discrimination needs to stop. Um, I hope that's one thing that the series does show yeah. that um, we need to really humanise. Like uh, homelessness is not a personality type, mm-hmm. you know, it's just an experience that people are having. We need to distinguish between those two.
5: And Spike, we, yeah, we need we we really need a rights a human rights based housing policy. Mm-hmm. We really need to build some housing. Um, um we all, and, and and also what's really clear from the interview from the the series it's it's not just about housing it's people need you know resources community so they can participate and produce their own their own projects their own follow their own dreams um everyone needs an opportunity i think it's important for people to have an opportunity to express themselves whether they're housed or not regardless of their housing you know their housing status mm. so i think yeah, these are things, and hopefully it starts a discussion, yeah, I think what Kelly's point out is really important, that it humanises, and just, I hope the series um, um, just reminds people that we are, you know, we all, we are, you know, we, we are brothers and sisters, basically, that's a real cliche, but we all, you know, the, the human um, experience is, you know, we all sharing in it, and I, you know, their their ambitions, needs, you know, you know, everyone, we all Mm -hmm. have them. And I hope that the people who are having a lived experience of homelessness get access to resources and support um, just like everyone else.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It should be about um, helping people thrive, not just survive, right? Um, So just to wrap up, where can people catch homeless in hotels? And do you have any social media that listeners can follow? Yeah, we're all
4: over the socials. So we've got a YouTube channel, we're on Instagram and Twitter at the handle is uh homeless in hotels radio. And uh as far as um the series it's going to premiere on three C R on th- uh Thursday, the twenty eighth of July, twelve PM to one PM. That's the old uh ruminations homelessness mm-hmm. slot. So um it will be um airing on there and then afterwards we'll um yeah have the episodes available um on the three C R website and our own um website as well, which it's currently yeah, you know, still just the last bits under development. Excellent. Like people miss it live, they'll definitely be able to listen
0: back. Sweet. Well look, Spike and Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, talk about the show and really encourage people to listen. We'll have all those links in our show notes. Thanks thank for you for And that was Kelly Whitworth and Spike Chipolone speaking with us about the upcoming launch of Homeless in Hotels, which is premiering on 3CR on Thursday, the 28th of July at 12 p.m. And Kelly produces Radical Australia here on 3CR and is passionate about peer-produced media. And Spike is a peer support worker at a Melbourne homeless health service with lived experience of homelessness and drug use. And together they co-hosted the former 3CR peer homelessness show Ruminations and co-founded the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria. You're on 3CR 855 a.m. on the Thursday Morning Breakfast Show.
4: Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown.
5: When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street.
4: Tune in to Homeless in Hotels.
5: A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels.
4: And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19.
5: Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm.
4: On 3CR, 855am. Homeless in hotels, a 3CR, 3CR supporter. of
2: Women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent to
1: women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the
6: can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an
1: extraordinary situation, where, too, where there are
3: armies there and
6: terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives?
3: Accent to women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds on
0: Community Radio 3CR. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And uh, we are about to hear from Ella with Inez, who's joining us again. Inez, do you want to intro?
6: Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Priya. So, Ella is a digital and communications organiser at the Migrant Workers Centre, and she's previously worked as a community organiser, student union representative, and is also a former ASU workplace delegate, and she joins us today to speak about the importance of the Migrant Workers 2022 survey, and how this impacts their work and policy recommendations. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Ella.
11: Hi, and Inez. Thank you for having me.
6: No, of course. Well... Um, I think I just want to start off with what the Migrant Workers Centre does, because I know that it empowers workers in Victoria to a whole range of things, to understand their rights, how to enforce them in the workplace, and connect them with other migrant workers. Uh, so the new Migrant Workers Centre survey for 2022 will make important policy recommendations based on the answers to this survey. Could you speak a little bit about this, what this survey is about and why it's so important?
11: yeah, of course. So I think the key thing is there isn't a lot of data out there about the experiences of migrant workers and especially those on temporary visas. Um, and often when there is research, it's really centered around the economy, so unemployment levels, um skill shortages, uh, but data and info about the experience of workers themselves is quite scarce. So I guess it's a missing piece of this uh, that this survey is aiming to address. This is also the second year that we've held this survey, so, um, while some questions are different, while we're taking a deeper look into some issues, uh, there are also other questions that we ask again. So, for example, um, looking at familiarity with industrial terms such as industry awards, and penalty rates. Um, and the purpose of that really also is to get a snapshot of how or if things have changed over time, um, You know, if there is greater awareness um, or information and resources available to migrant workers uh, about their workplace rights. So having this evidence to back up our broader campaigns around pathways for permanent visas, um, you know, workplace rights for workers, uh, ending you know, temporary protection visas and introducing permanent protection for people seeking asylum, this is all really crucial for that kind of work that we're doing.
6: Yeah, amazing. Um, I know that the work that you did with the Lives in Limbo report, which was also last year, um, which is an online survey and some in-depth interviews, on migrant workers' experiences in Australia. Um, And we did discuss it, I think, last, uh, previously on 3CR. Uh, Could you speak about the impact on the lives in Limbo report? Because it really highlighted a lot of amazing, um, important findings.
11: Yeah, definitely. So the report um, had some huge findings. Uh, Some key ones, you know, are that uh, we found 65% of temporary visa holders who responded to our survey had experienced wage theft, which is, you know, far greater than the average population numbers. We also found one in four had experienced other forms of labour exploitation, um, so things, you know, like being forced to work overtime or work without penalty rates. Um, and I think the most crucial thing was looking at the links between employee sponsorship and exploitation, as well as the links between being on a temporary short-term visa and exploitation. So uh, as I just, you know, mentioned, a lot of the stats um, and the research around Migrant workers were centred around the economy, skill shortages, and I think the impact of this Lives in Limbo report really has been uh, a shift towards looking at people and the families and, you know, at the centre of all of this. Um, and of course, you know, even just recently, uh, yesterday, I think we've seen Anthony Albanese talk about committing to permanent migration pathways, um, and I think we've definitely seen you know, more discussion in the media and the news about what it's like you know, living in limbo, being on a temporary visa permanently.
6: Absolutely, I think it's important um for a lot of people living in so called Australia to recognize that temporary visa holders are like the backbone of a lot of our economies, and uh they need, they deserve rights just as much as anybody else and I think also following on from this and you know what is being discussed in the media recently, what did the Lives in Limbo report highlight as like key supports that are really needed for migrant workers and what you see in your work every day.
11: Yeah, so when we talk about supports, often um, there's focus on I guess you know day to day things. So often a lot of workers come to us because there's wage theft issues, um, which we can help people you know negotiate with their employer to address. Um, you know there's workplace injury, that kind of thing. Um, As well as providing support in language, you know, ensuring there's translated resources out there. But I think what Lives in Limbo, you know, really touched on is that there aren't sort of short-term, day-to-day fixes to these problems. You know, it can't be resolved just on the individual level. And actually, the reason why there's so much wage theft is because there's huge issues with our, you know, migration and temporary visa system. So the recommendations the report made really touch on big structural changes. So That means things like introducing more permanent visas and more pathways to permanent visas. Um, And I think a really key part of the report also highlighted how over the last decade or couple of decades, while the number of uh, temporary short-term visas has increased dramatically, the number of permanent visas issued hasn't really changed at all. So it's really about addressing that imbalance in the system, as well as looking at things like faster visa processing, um, you know protecting migrant workers who are whistleblowers so there's no visa penalties um you know if they expose an employer who's underpaying them but also sponsoring their visa to stay in the country um, and also yes yeah, just looking at changing the system you know around employer versus perhaps you know a state-sponsored visa system and of course without these bigger structural changes we can continue to tackle you know things like wage theft on a case-by-case basis um, but it's really about supporting change to the system itself rather than perhaps you know individual workers um, providing in-language support, which of course is important, but doesn't touch on the heart of the issue.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I think we saw really significant policy failures um, and ongoing <laughs> impacts of COVID-19 on international students and migrant workers, often both. Um, we often left to pick up the pieces of like, you know, universities abandoning them, employers exploiting them and really hazardous working conditions. And you know, COVID is obviously ongoing. Uh, could you speak to the impact that you've seen COVID nineteen have on migrant workers and how migrant workers has been able to well center, sorry, has been able to support them, either individually or systemically?
11: Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we saw a lot of, uh, I guess reports about, you know, how there's been a change in migration numbers. Um, you know, I guess questions around whether there's skills shortages in certain industries. And we saw, you know, international students having the work hour limit extended. Um, so, you know, these are all things that for better or for worse impact how, you know, migrants on temporary visas work and live in the country day to day. But often I think the focus has too much, um, been you know, on those big picture statistics, the number of people coming in and out, and hasn't actually acknowledged that the vast majority of migrant workers, um, or a large portion at least, um, you know, are already in the country, have already stayed in Australia, um, and the people who perhaps were most affected weren't necessarily just people who, um, you know, couldn't come and go, but also people who stayed in the community for the last few years without any support. Um, you know, who had really prohibitive restrictions on where they were allowed to live or what kind of jobs they were able to do, um, often to fulfill visa requirements. Um, And I think the, you know, the lives and the stories of those workers haven't been talked about enough. So, you know, we saw a lot of community support um, uh, emerge throughout the pandemic. Um, But one of the key campaigns, for instance, that we're supporting right now, again, is for broader change to the visa system. So... One group we've been working closely with at the moment um, are 887 uh, visa applicants. So many of these people have you know, been in Australia for quite a number of years waiting uh, for this permanent visa to come through uh, on a temporary visa. Um, processing times has meant that people are forced to live in regional areas, often with not that much support. So when we talk about the impacts of COVID-19, um, you know, we're looking at the ways that we've been able to help workers Throughout that really tough time, you know, if there's been wage theft, if people have been unfairly dismissed, but it's also looking at the sort of injustices that this pandemic has revealed about the migration system itself and campaigns to change that.
6: Yeah, I think, you know, recognising that the people that have stayed and maybe don't have the luxury of going elsewhere (laughs) um, or even, uh, you know, are restricted by... Policy, or, or visa, or a whole, whole range of issues. Um, being able to support them, like on an ongoing basis, is definitely really important, as you've highlighted. Um, just before we go, could you maybe speak on how people can actually access and complete the survey, and also reach out if they do need support as a migrant worker?
11: Yeah, absolutely. It's probably the most important part. So the survey is available um, at migrantworkers.org.au forward slash survey underscore 2022. It's also just available from the front page of our website um, and then linked on all our social media more recently. So our handle is at MWCZIC. And we'll also be releasing it in further languages soon. So keep an eye out. Um, Right now it's just the English version that's out, but there'll be more languages coming Uh, and of course if anyone needs assistance with a workplace issue um at the website url i just mentioned we have translated resources about um you know wages how to handle workplace bullying um, all sorts of issues and you can also make confidential and free appointments for advice Um, and we can also provide that service in about a dozen or so languages um, or facilitate interpreters so yeah definitely very easy to uh, get help if you'd like to get in touch oh amazing thank you
6: yeah we'll definitely put that Um, in our show notes as well. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining us here today. Ella, was there anything else that you wanted to leave us with? No, thank you so much for having me. No worries. Thank you so much. Have Have a good day. Thanks. Thank you.
0: And that was Inez interviewing Ella, who's the digital and communications organizer at the Migrant Workers Center, and she has previously worked as a community organizer, student union rep, and is also a former ASU workplace delegate. And Ella joined us today to speak about the importance of the Migrant Workers 2022 survey and how this impacts their work and policy recommendations. And you'll be able to find more info about that in our show notes. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au 3CR Radio from
7: Fundraiser. 3 to 7 p.m. Saturday, 23rd of July. Uprise Radio and Stick Together, join forces, bringing you an afternoon of discussion and music. Climate, capitalism and the future. Zelda Grimshaw from Blockade Australia. Dr Colin Long, sustainability campaigner from Victoria Trades Hall. And Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Service. Followed by tunes from local legends... Liz Thomas and Maxine Vink Followed by Sooty Owls Refreshments, Raffle and Fun Climate, Capitalism in the Future Uprise Radio and Stick Together Event 3CR Fundraiser Saturday, July 23rd, 3 to 7pm Black Spark Cultural Centre 253A, St George's Road Tram 11 will get you there stop 30. $10 solidarity. No one turned away.
0: And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM about to go into our final interview for today with Renega Inpakumar from the Tamil Refugee Council and Renega's is a young Elam Tamil activist and law arts student with a long history of organizing to amplify Elam Tamil issues and she's joining us today to provide an analysis of the economic crisis and mass protests in Sri Lanka from an Elam Tamil perspective highlighting some important concerns that have often gone neglected in mainstream media. Reniga, thank Thanks for joining us today.
8: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Um, So listeners will no doubt have come across media out of Sri Lanka where mass protests have been taking place in response to the country's economic collapse, which has led to mass shortages of fuel, medical supplies, food, and other essentials. And protesters have recently garnered widespread media attention after occupying the residences of President Godabaya Rajapaksa and Prime Minister Raneli Wikramasinghe, who both agreed to resign on Saturday. And I, I understand that Rajapaksa is currently in the Maldives. Uh, Could you start off by telling us a bit about how this worsening economic situation has intersected with pre-existing tensions and divisions in the country, particularly regarding the situation of Elam Tamil people?
8: So I think it needs to be understand um, that since independence in 1948, Elam Tamils have been facing oppression. And this was through the use of economic usage of military aid and resources to continuously oppress. Elam whether that be through, you know, the Single Only Act um, or, you know, uh, not providing them fuel or medicine in the most important times, especially in Muli Baitel in 2009. Mm. So in Muli Baitel in 2009, this was, you know, the continued op- occupation of subjecting the Tamil people, and this was the st- structural genocide of decades, which was the main factors behind the current economic crisis. Mm. So the money was used to you know, pay um, international states for them to provide equipment for the Sri Lankan government to continuously bomb and torture Elam Tamils. Um, and it needs to be, I think, addressed that the divisions on the island, I think, began since the independence on Sri Lanka, which was what you know Elam Tamils call it to be Tamil Oppression Day because of the singular chauvinistic ideology that has been ingrained in all aspects of Sri Lanka, whether that be the constitution, the education system, the working class, this has all been ingrained to suppress Elam Tamils. And history has clearly shown that whoever is put in power, they carry this singular chauvinistic ideology. And Gozify has said that Prime Minister Rahul can now be president. Um, And this just shows that Roger Rajapaksa's ideology will be shifted to Ronald, who will continuously oppress Elam Tamil.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I mean, this, obviously, I think you're making a really important point about the long-standing structural oppression um, that underpins all of this. But as we've seen, a lot of mainstream media's focus when covering this unfolding crisis has been on issues of mismanagement and corruption purely in the economic realm, and... Um, And, you know, that's also from the sort of majority Sinhalese Buddhist um, protest movement have been amplifying these issues. Um, But I'm also wondering if you could talk about uh, the implications of some current and recent government leaders in some of these serious human rights violations during the civil war um, and, you know, including members of the Rajapaksa dynasty.
8: So I think it um, it should be addressed that Whilst the mainstream media likes to point out that it it was it was a civil war, it, it, we can say it was a genocide mm. since 1948 because what was placed into the constitution, what was placed in the actions from those in power, was genocidal acts to eliminate the Tamil culture, whether that be um, going into the east, um, north and east, and you know taking down um, our Hindu shrines, our Catholic shrines, and replacing it with Buddhist shrines trying to eliminate the Tamil language. And if we look at, you know, what what we have thought was going to be the PM, Ronald, now Gautapai, you know, he even yesterday issued, as quoted saying, unable to exercise, perform, and discharge his duties as president. And so he appoints PM Ronald as acting president, which is seen under, you know, the Article 371 of the Sri Lanka constitution. So, like, as I like to re- reiterate that, once again, whoever is in power, they will take this chance to continue to oppress.
0: Mm. And
8: it's not just those who have um, decision making; it's also people who are in who are in the army. So, mm-hmm. shivendra Silva, who's now the current head of the Sri Lankan army, you know, he's now he's barred from entry to the USA due to his role in the execution of Tamils in 2009. But being, you know, accused of crimes is not enough. He's still promoted to the head of military. Mm-hmm. So he's claiming he, he's able to rescue, he, he claimed after two, 2009 that he had rescued a large gathering of Tamil civilians, which is completely false. Because what occurred in 2009, that was not rescuing, that was deliberately, um, you know, killing Elam Tamils by putting them into a no-fire zone, stating that this is going to be a no-fire zone. We will not, you know, there won't be any attacks, but this was circled by the Sri Lankan military mm-hmm. deliberately to, you know, um, try and kill. And what occurred in the no was completely horrendous. There's evidence, yet um, Shivendra Silva and others are not accounted for that. Mm-hmm. And it's even seen with um, the former Sri Lankan army commander and accused war criminal Saras Fonseka, And he has, instead of, you know, um, going with Gautabaya, he's actually joined the protesters, and he's claiming that Sri Lankan forces um, want to see the struggle win, and but Fonseka is one of the architects of the Molviyagala genocide because he served as Sri Lanka's army commander during 2005 to 2009, and which oversaw war crimes. He mm. allowed the indiscriminate shelling of hospitals, so you know hospitals being blown up continuously, and this was timed so they would blow up a hospital once. Um, And then they would wait 45 more minutes, knowing that people would go to the hospitals and try and rescue and then blow the hospitals up again. He allowed mass executions and sexual violence to occur. So all these people are key key architects of the genocide and the continuing genocide that Elam Tumuls face. Hmm. And I think the Tamils are concerned, and if you notice, they are not taking part because these protests do not have a clear ideology of where they're going. Mm. It has started off with just saying, go home, go stuff. But Tamil people are in extreme fear that this is another act of this crisis. You know, it will fuel racism towards them again. And this economic crisis does not explain the long history of government mismanagement, corruption. And I think it needs to be addressed that this Um, uh, protest is for the benefit of those in the south, not in the north and east. Mm. And it also needs to be addressed that Elam Tamils have been protesting since 2009, especially the mothers. Whilst people say that the protesters, what they're doing, they're protesting for a long amount of time, I would disagree because Elam Tamil mothers, I think they have a lot of strength as well. And they've been protesting for their disappeared loved ones, but once again, the media likes to take the narrative of the South.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what what you're saying here really is that um, the current issues both are inextricable from the ongoing oppression and genocide of Tamil people, but also that the protests themselves um, really raise their own concerns about whether there is actually any transformative potential um, to change some of the structural issues that, that underpin um, you know, relations in Sri Lanka. Uh, I'm also wondering, um, before we wrap up, turning to local politics, um, I was hoping that you might be able to give us your perspective on both the new federal government's approach to refugee and asylum seeker policy, but also to diplomatic relations with Sri Lanka and what sort of meaningful action could be taken in these areas by the Albanese government. So if we
8: look at both liberal and labor, they have had extremely close ties with Sri Lanka, being that the genocidal government. And if you look um, two weeks ago, Australia's Home Affairs um, Minister Claire O'Neill met with senior military officials, including accused of war crimes genocide. And she was leading a delegation that included Australia's Border Force Commissioner, mm. um, which discussed matters relating to strengthening the existing bilateral ties. And so who was present at that meeting? It was Sri Lanka's newly appointed chief of defense, um, uh, Shavendra Silva. Mm -hmm. And so this just shows that the Australian government, whether they like to say publicly that we support, um, you know, people like the the, the Nestling family, their actions clearly do not um, show that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's to be addressed that they were in power in 2009 when Thousands and thousands of Elam Tamils were massacred in 2009, and everyone in Australia was trying to show that what was occurring was genocidal crimes, and there was key witnesses, there was eyewitnesses, yet the Labour government chose to ignore it and is still continuing to choose to ignore it because, you know, the last month they installed a tracking device on more than 4,000 Sri Lankan fishing vessels. So this just shows the repetitive actions of Labour of, you know, having close ties with Sri Lanka and providing resources to enable Sri Lanka to continuously oppress Elam Tamils And refugees now, their fight is for permanent protection, especially now, because refugees shouldn't be on three years or five year long visas. They need to be um, provided with permanent protection to live peacefully in Australia because they have fled such extreme terror. And I think Australians to realise that, They need to have permanent protection, but they also need to not just take each refugee as a photo opportunity with Mm -hmm. Anthony Albanese, you know, taking a photo with his Nestle and family, but not providing them with permanent protection just shows to the extent of how the Labour Party will go for refugees.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that is a really important point because there was obviously a lot of media attention post-election to, oh, you know, it's fantastic that the nadeza Lingam family is being returned to Biluela, but really it just turned out to be a photo opportunity uh, when we look at the sort of structural issues at play and the failure to. Uh, change any of these really oppressive policies um, and and hold up, you know, our international um, commitments to, to refugee rights. Now, Renika, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about and support the work of the Tamil Refugee Council?
8: So we have our Facebook page, Tamil Refugee Council, and we are actually having our upcoming rally in Sydney on July 24th, which will have the Tamil contingent to Refugee Action Coalition's rally at 1 p.m. At Town Hall, and you can also find more work on our Instagram page, Tamil Refugee Council, as
0: well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking us through these issues and making the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. No worries. And that was Renega Inpakumar from the Tamil Refugee Council, and she's a young Elam Tamil activist and law arts student with a long history of organizing to amplify Elam Tamil issues. And she joined us today to provide an analysis of the economic crisis and mass protests in Sri Lanka from an Elam Tamil perspective, highlighting some important concerns that have often gone neglected in mainstream media coverage. Renego's activism and organizing is focused on issues including the return of land to Elam Tamil people and the recognition of Tamil Elam and Tamil genocide, um, calling for those responsible to be held to account. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I might just give us a very brief rundown of what we covered today. So first up, we heard some short speeches from the NADOC march in Narm this past Friday, the 8th of July. We also heard from Stephanie Bernard, who's a Ph.D. student at Melbourne University, who joined us today to discuss the recent release of images taken by NASA's James Webb Space Telescope and to talk about the telescope's potential to deepen our understanding of the universe. We were then joined by Kelly Whitworth and Spike Cipollone to speak about the upcoming launch of a three-part radio series documenting life in hotels during the COVID-19 pandemic called Homeless in Hotels, premiering on 3CR on Thursday, the 28th of July at 12 p.m., we were then joined by Ella Shee, the digital and communications organiser at Migrant Workers Centre, speaking about the centre's 2022 survey and how this impacts their work and policy. And finally, we were joined again by Renega Inpakamar from Tamil Refugee Council. We'll catch you next week on Thursday Morning Breakfast.
3: 3 our Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this programme. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast
4: produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.